Domestic violence is unfortunately one of the fastest rising crimes in the entire world, and that was really just exasperated during the pandemic, especially in countries where families were essentially told to stay in their homes, only leaving home for essential things in order to stop the spread of the virus. That meant that countless people who had suffered domestic abuse in the past were essentially forced into a situation where it was nearly impossible to get away from their attackers. Even sadder still is the fact that domestic violence is quite often not dealt with swiftly nor appropriately, with guilty parties often facing minimal time behind bars, if any at all. This week we're going to look at a case that appears to very clearly have been one where not enough was done to stop an extremely violent man, and in the end, that fact led to said man murdering two people in cold blood out of jealousy, rage, and a seemingly unstoppable urge to hurt other people. Stories like this one are unfortunately very common all around the world, and seem to be picking up in number and ferocity all the time. Hello, and welcome to episode 118 of Gone But Never Forgotten. Domestic abuse needs to be taken way more seriously. The murders of Scott Sessions and Heather Frank. Stanley, also known as Scott Sessions, was born on March 25th of 1966 in Ogden, Utah, to a single mom who put him up for adoption because she knew that she was incapable at her young age and alone of providing any kind of a life for young Scott. Scott would be adopted by Stanley Sessions and his wife, Linda Sessions. He grew up with a brother and sister-in-law in Steve and Norma Sessions. Scott attended Greeley West High School in Greeley, Colorado, and he graduated with a degree in music from Brigham Young University in Provo, Utah. While he attended Brigham Young, he was a member of the BYU Premier Jazz Band that was called Synthesis, and they performed all across the United States and in Europe. Before his life was tragically taken, Scott was well known throughout the state of Colorado and well beyond as an incredible trumpet player. He truly was one of the best. Scott was performing with a few bands at the time of his death, most notably The Movers and Shakers and George Gray and the Elvis Experience Band. 
Scott Sessions' one true love in life was his trumpet and the ability to travel and perform on stage for people in places of all shapes and sizes. His entire world revolved around playing his trumpet. Everyone that knew Scott says that he was a lovely man and one that loved everyone that he came into contact with, and of course, one who loved nothing more than to perform. On February 10th of 2020, Bill Mean, who was a snowplow driver, was clearing some snow in Rocky Mountain National Park in northern Colorado when he realized that in the distance he saw smoke. As he approached the smoke, he saw a big log that was burning, and he wondered to himself why the log was on fire and how that had happened. After he took a few more steps towards the fire, though, he realized that the log was surrounded by branches and that someone had very clearly built a fire. As he got closer, though, he realized that things were not quite as they seemed and were much more sinister. He saw that the branches had boots on them, and that was when he realized that he was certainly looking at a crime scene and that he was also looking at a body. Bill quickly returned to his snowplow and made a call to dispatch to let them know that he had found a body up in the park and that the victim was certainly already deceased. Bill would then wait 45 minutes, which of course he said felt like an eternity, waiting for first responders to arrive on the scene to investigate. When the first responders did arrive, they found the badly burnt body of a male, and unfortunately there was no identification to let them know who he was. First responders, including Justin Atwood, who would wind up taking the lead in this case, said that they had never come across a body that was so badly burned and so badly damaged. It was clear that the fire was intended to destroy all evidence of the man who had been murdered. The man's body had been wrapped in a light blue blanket and plastic, and then those materials were then duct taped to his body to secure it before it was left to burn. Investigators believed that if Bill had not been up in the park plowing snow that day, the body and whatever evidence they had found may have never been found, and this case would have remained forever as a mystery. The fire was, however, not the cause of death. Investigators found that the neck of the man had been thoroughly slashed almost to the point of decapitation, and that was deemed to be the cause of death. There was no fight, they believed. This had been a surprise attack and an instant death for whomever they had discovered. Without any evidence regarding who they were looking at, investigators had to hit the ground running to find out first who the victim was, and then of course to try and figure out who had murdered him. Also on February 10th, there was a large crowd gathered for an Elvis Presley impersonation show. And the man, George Gray, who performed as Elvis, had a very large backing band. As George Gray and the Elvis Experience Band warmed up and did their sound check, George and others realized that one of the musicians, his lead trumpet player, 
Scott Sessions was not at the venue. Approximately 30 minutes before their performance, everyone started to get really concerned because not being at the venue unannounced was very out of character for Scott, who was always on time and always looking to perform. As time went on and went by after the show and into the next couple of days, everyone who knew Scott started to grow increasingly concerned when they did not hear from him. George, who was actually pretty close with Scott, decided to reach out to Scott's father, Stanley, to see if Stanley had heard at all from Scott. When he called, he told Stanley that Scott had missed a gig, and Stanley was immediately concerned because he also knew that that was not like Scott at all. George told Stanley that he was going to head over to Scott's home to do a wellness check, and Stanley agreed and said he would meet him there. When the two men went and entered Scott's home, however, they found that Scott was not at home. Immediately, Stanley decided to go to the police to report Scott as missing, and he let the police know that he had last heard from Scott on the Saturday when Scott had called his father from his car to let him know that he was going to Fort Collins, Colorado to visit with some friends. As the two were talking, Scott had told his father that he was now arriving at his destination, and Scott told his dad that he would see him in the morning. Stanley did say, though, that he did not know who Scott was going to see, and so he was helpless, left only to wait. Only a couple of hours after Stanley had returned home, he received a phone call from the police to return to the police station, and inside was Justin Atwood, the lead investigator in the case of the man that was discovered in Rocky Mountain National Park. The body that had been discovered had been confirmed through fingerprints, and the body belonged to Stanley's son, Scott Sessions. Stanley was, of course, told that the investigators believed that Scott was the victim of a homicide, and that shocked Stanley and everyone else, because no one could think of anyone who would want harm done to Scott Sessions. He did not seemingly have an enemy in the world that anyone was aware of. Investigators believed that this was a case where someone wanted Scott dead, and they wanted him dead in a very bad way. The indignity and desecration to his body and the fact that they had tried to destroy the body entirely showed that this was meticulously done. At that point in the investigation, though, there was not a lot for investigators to follow. They had a body, sure, and they had a cause of death, but beyond that, they had zero leads, and they had no idea why the murder had occurred or who may be behind it. One of the first things that investigators looked into was Scott's cell phone, as they hoped for some kind of lead for them to sink their teeth into. The first thing that investigators discovered was that when Scott had said that he was going to Fort Collins, as he had told his father, that was not true. The information that they received from cell towers showed that Scott had actually spent the night in Greeley, near King Super's grocery store. 
Investigators headed to that area of Greeley, and in the parking lot of Supers, they found Scott's vehicle. They officially had their very first lead, and so investigators went to work to try and find security footage from anywhere in the area that would show them what had happened to Scott after his car was parked there. Hours upon hours of security footage from surrounding stores were meticulously watched, and finally they saw that on Tuesday, February 11th, at 6.48 a.m., someone drove Scott's car into the parking lot, and they then got out of the car and walked away. This, of course, had happened the day after Scott's body was discovered, so certainly... The police knew that this could not have been Scott driving his car. Unfortunately, as we do see far too often, the camera footage was too grainy, and so investigators were unable to decipher still who had parked the car and abandoned it there. All that they knew was that based on the video, they felt that the stature of the person showed that this was a male that had deserted Scott's car. As investigators looked into Scott, as with most of us, they did realize that his image was not entirely as squeaky clean as most people believed. Two years earlier, on July 15th of 2018, Scott had an order of protection placed upon him by his ex-girlfriend named Loretta. Loretta and Scott had been together in a relationship for quite a long time, and they had got embroiled in an argument and Loretta claimed that Scott had thrown a coffee mug at her. Loretta told Scott on the spot to leave, and then she did have charges pressed with domestic abuse charges. What investigators found out was that Loretta actually only lived within about 300 feet north of that cell tower that Scott's phone had last pinged off of. And so, Loretta was brought in for questioning. Investigators were told by Loretta that even though their relationship had ended with that incident, the two had actually remained close friends, and she even had a voicemail on her phone from Scott that was from less than 24 hours before he disappeared. Loretta said that she had not heard about Scott or tried to return his call because she had been, quote, offline, and she had called in sick for work for two days. She did tell investigators that she didn't want to tell them why she had called in sick, though. As many questions as that explanation seemed to leave, investigators did believe that she was distraught enough over what had happened to Scott that she was not the person that they were looking for. While the interview was taking place with Loretta, Investigator Atwood received information that investigators had found a sheet filled with Scott's passwords inside of his home while they were executing a search warrant. With that information, they had been able to access Scott's Facebook account and his messages. They had found messages between himself and another woman named Heather Frank. Heather was a single mother to three adult sons, and she worked as a waitress at Doug's Diner. When investigators looked into Heather, they realized that she too lived very close to Supers and the cell tower that Scott's phone had last pinged off of. 
Investigators then set to work to find out everything that they could about Heather before they would bring her in for questioning. Doug's Diner was the local place in Greeley. The waitresses knew most of their customers by name, they knew their orders, and they knew a lot about their customers. Everyone that knew Heather said that she was a wonderful woman who put everyone before herself, and she was someone who would never have a cross word for anyone. Heather was beautiful on the inside and on the outside, and she always looked her best when she came to work. Heather was known to be positive, bubbly, and an absolute joy to be around. That came from friends, family, co-workers, and customers. Evidently, Heather was the salt of the earth. Investigators also found that Heather had recently called it uh, quits with her long-term off-again, on-again boyfriend, and she had started to venture out to concerts in Greeley to try and kickstart her social life. Her co-workers said that they had been happy to hear that she had recently met someone, though they did not know a name because nobody liked the ex-boyfriend and nobody felt that he was good for her. The new man that she had met was, of course, Scott Sessions. The two had gone on a few dates since meeting on January 20th, and they had quite a bit of online conversation between them. Everything appeared to be a budding relationship between two people who were getting to know one another and slowly getting comfortable. And then came the conversation on February 8th on Facebook between Scott and Heather. The conversation went something like this. At 5.13pm, Heather said to Scott, seemingly out of nowhere, quote, want to come over? Unquote. Scott to Heather, quote, sure, I just need to hop in the shower. Sound groovy? Unquote. Heather to Scott, hurry. There was then a pause in the conversation, which was seemingly when Scott was having a shower. And then Scott would write again, quote, I'm on my way over. Warning, I smell pretty amazing, unquote. Then at 7.59 p.m., Heather wrote to Scott, Hey, where you at? Unquote. Investigators immediately noted that the entire conversation from Heather's end seemed to be actually rather cold and short, much different than their previous conversations had been. Investigators found out then that early the following morning at 3.21 a.m., Heather had texted her boss at Doug's Diner and let him know that she was not feeling well and that she would not be in for her scheduled shift. She said that she had come down with the flu, and nobody really questioned that. And then, two days later, on the Monday, the day that Scott's body was discovered, Heather showed up for work, but she didn't really seem like the Heather that everyone knew and that they saw at work every day. People said that she was reserved, she was quiet, and she seemed actually to be very disheveled, which, as I mentioned, was incredibly out of character for her as she was someone who always took pride in her looks and her presentation. All of that started to sound really suspicious to investigators, 
and Investigator Atwood decided that he wanted to surveil Heather. Atwood parked nearby Heather's apartment, and he remembers that right when he arrived, he noticed a Subaru crossover station wagon that was covered in red dirt on the sides and that had damage on the front of the car. The red dirt was significant because it was just like the dirt that investigators had seen all over the roads heading up to Rocky Mountain National Park. The vehicle, he would find out, belonged to Heather's ex-boyfriend, a man named Kevin Eastman. Five days after the body of Scott was found, this Subaru was just sitting around, covered in proof that it was probably where Scott had been found. That was enough for investigators to start pulling data from the cell phones of Kevin and from Heather. They found out that Kevin, Heather, and Scott's phones had all been pinging off of cell towers in the same places for almost 12 hours. That 12 hours started when Scott had seemingly gone to Heather's apartment. Then, the morning after Scott had gone missing, Kevin and Heather's cell phones traveled along roads within Greeley, and then reception was lost for both phones at the same time as the vehicle they were traveling in approached the area where Scott's body had been discovered. Investigators then found CCTV footage that showed that very same Subaru traveling in that very same area where the cell phones were pinging. Investigators, though, were unfortunately unable to see who was traveling or driving the vehicle, and they were unable to make out the plates. But they did recognize that the Subaru in the video had damage in the same areas that Eastman's Subaru had damage. They were sure that it was Kevin's car, and they were sure now that Kevin and Heather were inside with the body of Scott Sessions. Investigators believed that they now had their two suspects, Kevin Eastman and Heather Frank, in the homicide of Scott Sessions. It seemed that the case may be quickly nearing a resolution. Investigators quickly found out that Kevin was not new to police. He had previously been charged with assault, possession of a weapon, and driving while impaired. They did not, however, believe that they yet had enough evidence to bring Kevin or Heather in for questioning, and so they instead had surveillance cameras installed across the street from Heather's apartment, and they also had GPS trackers installed on the vehicles of both. The next day, after the cameras were installed, Lieutenant Robbins was watching a live feed from the cameras, when he saw Kevin and Heather leaving Heather's home and getting into Kevin's Subaru. The pair were then tracked by the GPS to a farm in Weld County. Lieutenant Robbins decided that he should drive out to the property to see if he could spot anything going on that was untoward. The farm was about 45 minutes out into the countryside, and Lieutenant Robbins looked at the property when he drove by and could really only make out the home and the garage on the property. It was nighttime and it was dark out, so he was unable to spot Kevin, Heather, or the Subaru. Without a warrant, there was not a lot that Robbins could do that wouldn't potentially jeopardize the case, 
and so he left for the evening and went home to rest before returning to work in the morning. Investigators knew that the GPS would track the movements of the pair, and so they felt secure in knowing that they could retrace steps in the morning if need be. The next morning, however, upon arriving at the office, the GPS was telling a story that was very troubling to all of the investigators. The Subaru had spent hours in the middle of the night driving, seemingly aimlessly, around the countryside and making stops in random locations along the way. Investigators worried that someone might be disposing of and destroying evidence that could be crucial to their investigation. The GPS also showed that the Subaru had then returned to the farm that Robbins had scoped out the night before, so he decided to again head out to the property in an unmarked police car. As he approached the property, though, he did notice smoke coming up from the property, and he saw Kevin standing out by a burn pit. Robbins immediately wondered what was being burned now, since they had already found the body of Scott. Of course, from the road, he was unable to see what was inside of that burn pit. He then watched on as Kevin got into the Subaru and left the property, Knowing that he was alone out there, Robbins made the decision to follow Kevin to see where he would go next, and it wound up being a very good thing that he did. Kevin drove to a nearby gas station and proceeded to get a tank out of his car, and he started to fill it. Knowing that Kevin was likely getting fuel to continue burning whatever was on that farm property, Robbins was left to make a snap decision without calling in to his superiors. He got out of his car, and he arrested Kevin on the spot, right there at the gas station. When Kevin arrived at the police station for questioning, he waived his rights, and he said that he would speak to Detective Atwood and everyone immediately. And Kevin seemed to be going out of his way, though, people noticed, to act very timid and overly gentle as he spoke. He was clearly trying to look as innocent as he possibly could. Kevin made it clear to investigators that he had nothing to do with the killing of Scott Sessions. And when investigators asked him where Heather was, he said that he assumed that she was at work. They told him that Heather was not at work. Heather was also not at home, however, her vehicle was still at her house. Investigators believed at that point that Heather might be on the run now, after having escaped. Kevin told investigators that he wasn't sure then, and he was also concerned, he said as well. He said that Heather was absolutely the love of his life, and that he had just asked her to marry him for the third time. However, he said that Heather had declined again. Investigators tried to press on, and they told Kevin that they knew that he and Heather had been together with Scott on Saturday because their phones had all been pinging off of the same cell towers. Investigators then even showed Kevin the video footage of his car heading up to the park and then heading back. They then asked Kevin if he wanted them to believe that all of that was just a coincidence. Kevin told them that he wasn't quite sure what 
he could make out of all of that evidence. When investigators attempted to read the last conversation that occurred between Scott and Heather's Facebook accounts, Kevin plugged his ears and he pleaded with them to not read those messages to him. He said that he didn't want to hear any of the things that had been said between Scott and Heather. Kevin told investigators that he felt sick to his stomach and he now needed a break. So, investigators left the room to give him that break. When he was left alone, though, Kevin got up and walked over to the corner of the room where he started to audibly pray to God and ask God to tell him what had happened to Scott so that he could help the officers solve their case. He also prayed for God to keep Heather safe. This, however, was all for show. In the middle of that interview, Atview Atwood got a message about Heather. Heather's body had been discovered on the farm where Kevin was spotted having a fire. Her body was found hidden under a pile of lumber, and she had two bullet wounds to her chest. She, too, had been murdered. Heather's body was also wrapped in plastic, just like Scott's had been, and it appeared that her body had been prepped to be burned. That was likely why Kevin had left to go to the gas station. Armed with that information, investigators returned to Kevin and told him that Heather had been murdered. Kevin responded by saying that Heather could not be dead, and then he started to deny everything that was presented to him. Kevin was eventually charged that day with two counts of first-degree murder in the deaths of Scott Sessions and Heather Frank. It would later be discovered that there was a lot of reasons why everyone in Heather's life had a strong dislike for Kevin. She had been abused mentally and physically by him for years and years throughout their disastrous relationship. Kevin had assaulted her on numerous occasions, and he had even held a knife to her throat once and threatened to kill her. The worst threats that she had faced happened every time that she had tried to leave Kevin once and for all. About a year before she was murdered, there was police body cam footage that is incredibly hard to watch of her being in a hospital after one such episode. She told police that she needed their help desperately and that she needed things to be taken seriously. On that occasion, Kevin had assaulted her by punching her very hard in the ribs three different times, and Heather had fled because she feared that Kevin would do worse. Police told Heather that they would take the situation seriously, and yet, here we are. When Heather reported that domestic violence to police in April of 2019, Heather was one of more than 50 million women in America who will report domestic violence in their lifetime. It really does make me sick to my stomach more than almost anything when I hear about situations like this. Cases where a person had a long history of abuse, both unknown to police and known. People like this should not be allowed to walk the same earth and breathe the same air with the same freedom that the rest of us do. This man should have been behind bars, not free to commit murder twice. 
I don't believe that the police erred in this specific F investigation of Scott's murder. I don't know that police had any evidence in front of them as things quickly evolved to make them believe that Kevin was a threat to Heather. The problem was that a man who had abused her multiple times in the past had not been dealt with more strictly in the past. Two lives would be saved if this man was staring at bars long before he was committing murder. Police believed that Kevin had somehow found out that Heather was moving on and that Scott was the center of her affection and that that had been enough for him to fly off the deep end. They believed that because he viewed Heather as his property, he could not bear to see her with anyone else. And as such, they believed that all of the conversation that we talked about earlier that had taken place between their accounts on February 8th was actually Kevin typing and pretending to be her, and he was setting up an ambush. They believed that that was why that particular conversation felt different. Investigators believed that Kevin had lured Scott to his death. A bloodstain that was found inside of Heather's door seemed to prove that Kevin had likely hid behind the door and waited for Scott to enter before attacking him unannounced and slitting his throat, killing him instantly. They believed that the first murder was a fit of jealous rage and then that he perhaps had murdered Heather because he realized that she would never choose him and he likely knew that one day she would turn him in. He thought that he was covering his ass with that second murder. In June of 2020, Kevin went on trial, and he pled not guilty to both murder charges. Kevin's defense was that Heather had been the person to kill Scott, and that he had just helped to dispose of the body. And then he said that the man that owned the farm where they found Heather's body had actually been the owner of the property that had murdered her. He really was grasping at straws here. Ultimately, Kevin Dean Eastman was found guilty of two counts of first-degree murder in the homicides of Scott Sessions and Heather Frank. He was also found guilty of tampering with a deceased human body and tampering with physical evidence. Kevin received two life sentences consecutive in jail, plus another 27 years, and finally... Kevin was where he always deserved to be. Hopefully, sitting in a dark and dank cell and dwelling on the fact that he killed an innocent man and his supposed innocent soulmate. I cannot imagine being the investigators, though, in this case. I mean, it's very evident to me that they worked this case fast and hard. There were leads found, there were leads chased, and investigators believed that they were closing in on justice for Scott, only to find out that even though they were very, very close to the truth, they had missed one major detail. And because of that, Heather too had lost her life. That is a lot to live with, on your heart and on your mind. I want to close this episode by telling you that if you're going through anything like Heather was. First of all, sadly but truly, 
you are far from alone. All around the world, there are people of all genders, people of all ages, people of all races and shapes and sizes who are suffering at the hands of people that supposedly love them and supposedly are loved by them. As someone that has lived that as a victim in the past, I can tell you that I know that the hardest thing that one person can do is get away and put distance between yourself and your abuser. But there are certainly ways that it can be done. However, with that said, we all know that there are also lots of cases that sadly end just like this one. And even more where the abuser, the abusee stays with the abuser just because they believe that that is somehow easier. It really is heartbreaking. If you find yourself the victim of abuse of any kind, please tell family, please tell friends, and most of all, reach out to someone that can hopefully help you. What I find incredibly sad is the number of organizations and protocols in the world that we have to go in and rescue animals when there is proof of abuse in hopes that we can save those animals and give them a better life. And yet, we seem to be much less apt to do that for our fellow human beings somehow. It really is baffling. Talk to someone if you are suffering so that you don't suffer alone and that's so, and make sure that you do not suffer in silence much like anything that you can go through in life you are certainly not the only one going through whatever you're going through please try and find some help and try and find some love that's what i'm all about and what i'm always trying to push here on the podcast all the time we need to be a part of the solution and not a part of the problem in the world around us. Each and every human being is capable of being better. So do just that in the world around you. Be better. Be a solution and not a problem. And that is where I'll leave things again on this episode, telling you that there is hope and that we can all be a part of that hope in this world. I will close by simply saying thank you to all of you goners who tune in each and every week. You're a part of the positive in my life. So take care between episodes, and we will talk again next time. Thank you for listening to Gone But Never Forgotten.